you open your Bibles to the chapter I'd like to read in tonight is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. I was saved uh, November 22nd, 1998. I was 15 years old, and I was saved through a verse uh, in this chapter. So we're going to read uh, some of the first couple of verses in this chapter tonight, and then I'd like to speak on just one verse, which is Isaiah 53 and verse 5. But we'll read the uh, the first five verses of the chapter. It's a very famous chapter. Um, maybe some have said one of the most famous chapters in your Old Testament. Uh, and we'll just take time to read uh, just more than more than just a verse tonight. We'll read, uh, we'll read this section here that opens up the chapter. So Isaiah 53 verse 1 says this, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And this is the verse I'd like to speak on tonight, Isaiah 53 and 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. We'll read that verse one more time. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. I know that God will add a blessing to the reading of his word. When you look up sometimes the way that, that words change throughout history, each one of us can, can tell you of certain words that have changed in meaning over the years, and you'd say, I wouldn't use that word anymore, though I used it when I was a kid. And sometimes, not only that, but words usage change over history, like how often they're used. And if it's a really, if it's a really hip word, like if it's the latest and the greatest, you'll hear it all the time. But if it, if it sounds archaic, you'd say, you haven't heard that word in, in 10 or 20 years. Well, uh, this comes from uh, a fast fact, but a reliable source. And they say that the word impossible has decreased in usage almost 50% over the past 100 years. So from 1918 until 2018, as it were, uh, the word impossible has just decreased in use almost half, half of its use. You say, that's remarkable. I, I try to think in your own mind, when's the last time I used impossible? When's the last time I even brought that up? And I, I guess that's maybe in a positive light, you'd say at least we're becoming more positive. Like, you know, you'd say, can you get along with your brother? Impossible. No, but now we're saying, no, I think I could do it. Just get us rooms on opposite ends of the house, you know, or could you eat and finish your whole dinner? Impossible. No, yes, I could, as long as it's Kentucky Fried Chicken. And so maybe we're using it more ways now and, and, and maybe we're, but I was thinking of the case of salvation. The Lord Jesus once said in Matthew 19 and answering someone's question, how can men be saved? Because I'm looking at an audience tonight and some are wondering every night we preach this message and I want to know that you are guaranteed that you're saved tonight. That you are 100% sure 
you're going to heaven, and you'd say, that's impossible. But the Lord Jesus said, if it were up to men, it would be impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so the Lord Jesus used this word, and maybe we're not using it anymore in religious context because we think no one can know. It's not, it's not possible. It's impossible to know for sure. The Bible says you can. And the Bible says you can know that because a man took your place. And that's what I'd like to speak on tonight when we read this verse here of a man who took your place. If you were to go home tonight, I, you always say, we'll give you some homework to do. Whenever people said that to me, I always said, don't do that. You know, it's, it's like a sick saying. You think, I went through 12 years of school so that I don't have to do homework anymore, right? I work eight to five, and I want nothing to do when I get home. But if you want something to do when you get home, I, I, I've never actually told you to do something otherwise, so I'll, I'll limit it to one night. I'll give you homework. But if you read through this whole chapter, all 12 verses here, you'd say it's a, it's, it's a really just a, such a unique parallel as you read through the verses and you read verses one to four and it tells you about the life of Jesus Christ and then you read verses five to eight and it tells you about his death and then you read verse nine and it tells you about his burial and then you read verses 10 to 12 and it tells you about his resurrection and you're mesmerized as you read through the chapter how how descriptive it is about the Lord Jesus Christ and as you read that you have to be reminded that he wrote this the prophet, 750 years before Jesus Christ was ever born. I was almost imagining today Mr. Isaiah and Mrs. Isaiah sitting there. I don't know if they had a hearth or a fire, or, or maybe it was the summertime, so they had no fire. I don't know if they had fans. And, and, and him writing and, and, and him telling her what, she, what he was writing, she would say, who are you writing about? Who is it that you're talking about in this chapter? And there, Mr. Isaiah could say, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know. He could say, I, I know what this man's going to do. I know what this person, I, I, I can write about all his actions, but I just, I'm not sure who this is going to be. And you'd say, how remarkable for us tonight. As I look at my audience and I say, some of us here, we might say, do you know Jesus Christ? Because you look at this chapter and as you hear those verses come off the page, as you hear me read them, immediately we all think of one man, Jesus Christ. And I would say to you, do you know him? Do you know him? Because the apostle Paul, when he describes the sufferings of Jesus Christ, he says, I know him. I know him. You or I might say, we know of someone. All of us here say we, we know of the president, but as far as I know, unless there's a couple surprise secret service agents here, none of us know him. We all know of the New York Yankees, but as far as I'm concerned, some of them are down in Washington, D.C. for the All-Star game. Maybe, maybe I'm surprised. No one here knows one, unless you live in Franklin Lakes, and maybe you live next to one of them. I, but you say to know someone so different than to know of and to believe tonight. I talked to an individual in the back of this tent, and, 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 and he said to me, he said, I believe, I believe in God, David. He said, I believe in God. And I said to him, I said, I said, you believe in God, but do you believe God? I said, the whole world, it seems, believes in God. There are people who have boarded planes to, 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 to drive them into buildings who believed in God. There are people who would 
crawl on their knees for miles in order to achieve heaven, and they have believed in God. There are people who have spent their whole lives in monasteries because they believed in God. But when I come to this Bible, it tells me heaven is because I believe God. I believe what he said. I believe what he has said about me. And we spoke on that last night. Me, a wicked, condemned, guilty sinner. And I believe what he says about his son, that his son came into the world to save people like me. He came to save sinners. And so the writer here, he starts off and he doesn't know who he's writing about, but you know. And so you have a great advantage tonight. You have this greatest of all privileges that you know this speaks about Jesus Christ. And it was written 700 and some odd years before he was ever born. And here we are 2,000 years after afterwards, and we're still speaking about him. You know, when it comes to this, Paul says, you know, well, not Paul, but when, when the writer here, Isaiah, speaks about him, he speaks about all his actions. And I was even thinking further than that. Uh, Seth and I, we were listening to some presidential podcasts the other day, and, and one of the men, he, he, he referred to Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, which is a uh, it's, a, it's actually a way in which you know how long to make your messages because he only spoke for three minutes and everyone remembers it. You say, that's what we're doing wrong. Half an hour, we're killing it, right? You know, three minutes there, four minutes. But in his speech there at Gettysburg that day, he said, he said this, he said, years from now, he goes, men will not take note, nor will they remember the words which we have spoken, but they will never forget what these men have done this day. What these men have done, they will forget the words but they will always remember what the men have done. That's unique because today, if I asked you what happened at Gettysburg, few people would know. But if I asked you who said the Gettysburg Address, everyone here knows that Lincoln said it. We all remember the words, but we don't remember the actions. It's just the reverse of what Lincoln said we would do. And yet when we come to the Bible and we read this verse about he was wounded, he was bruised, and we read about what he did, we have to put the man and the words together. You can see what he did, but unless you believe the Bible that says he did that for you, Christ died for you, that's the guarantee. That's it. I hope to have a chance to talk to some of you before the meetings are over. And I just want you to open your Bible and tell me why it is you can't believe what God is saying. Because that's what stands between someone and salvation. It's just that they look at these pages as they turn them and as they look at the words on them and they would almost say, it sounds good. But what about for me? What about for me to see the actions and yet to remember the man? He says here, when we read this, this 12 verse chapter, all of it can be summed up like this. There was a perfect servant who died for guilty people, a perfect servant who died for guilty people. And we can sum up all 12 verses just like that. And yet very unique. I just, I want to talk about verse five, but I just want to think about that first verse for a second. Very unique, what he mentions here and just the words that he chooses. Because if, if you were to read in the Psalms, uh, I got a man told me the other night too, I said, you ever read the New Testament? He goes, no, I only read the Psalms. 
I said, well, you can always move over. You know, reading plans, they do both sides of the Bible. It's good to go to both sides of the Bible. But if you were to go through Psalms, you wouldn't be through the, maybe on the, after the first week was over, when you got to Psalm 8, you would read this, that, that when God created the universe, he, he just used his finger, it says. He just used his finger to create a universe. And then after you probably got done with Psalms, you'd go back to the beginning of the Bible, you'd read Genesis. And when you get to Exodus, it tells me that God brought a whole country, a whole nation out of slavery, and he just used his hand. It says, just his hand. But when it comes time to read about God saving sinners, we read here, his whole arm. That's how important you are tonight. The whole universe, just a finger. A whole country, just a hand. One sinner. God's arms were outstretched at Calvary and nailed to a cross that you could be saved. That you could be saved from your sins. And so Isaiah, he starts here and he says, I just want you to know the magnitude of this. I want you to know how grand and how amazing it is compared to everything else that when God made man, he just breathed into him. He just breathed into him and he made man a living soul. And in order to save man, he had to breathe out at Calvary and die. You say, what a contrast. What a difference. Man is marvelous. And, and you'd say it's unbelievable how, how all of man comes together and provides a, a living being. And you'd say, how marvelous is salvation that all we deserved in life was to be lost in eternity in hell. And yet we can be saved tonight and absolutely sure of it because of a God who became a man and died at Calvary. He exhaled at Calvary and he died there. And so just to look at the verse tonight, Isaiah 53 and 5, that was an extensive opening for the verse. But it says here, he was, but he was. And then look how the verse ends. If you look at Isaiah 53 and 5, it says, but he was, and it ends with this, we are. He was we are, and that is salvation. He was, we say, of all that happened in the past. The night I got saved, I realized what, need, what was necessary and what was required to save my soul happened on a Friday in the month of April in the year 8033 when he was wounded, when he was bruised so that I could be healed. I could be. He was. We are. It's the great statement of the Bible that what was done was done so that I could have something. You say healed. You say, does the Bible really like to use that word healed? Well, the Lord Jesus sure liked it. Because the Lord Jesus said this one day, and, and if, if he had a ton of followers, he, he annoyed nearly half of them this day when he said this. And he said this. He said, people who are healthy don't need a doctor. Only people that are sick. I didn't come to call righteous people, but sinners to repentance. And so my message tonight is not for healthy individuals, because if you're good tonight, this message will have nothing for you. But if you're sick of sin tonight, if you are sick in sin, if you are sick of what it has done to you, to your family, to your surroundings, then this message says, he was, and we are healed. He was, and we are healed. As I look at the statements that are made here, it's very unique. It says, he was, and, and it lists all these things that happened. And then it always complements it with something for us. It says, he was wounded. He was bruised. He was chastised. 
There were stripes placed on him. And all those words are significant in their meaning. If you look at wounded, it has to do with the piercing of the hands or just piercing. When you look at that fact that he was bruised, it has to do with the idea of being crushed. What could crush a man? What could crush a perfect man? Nothing but my sin. The chastisement, the discipline, the, the stripes there. It's looking at this, the whole comprehensive picture of it all. And it brings it down. You know what's unique? I, I read this, uh, I, it was at least within the past month, that when you look at all five types of wounds that exist in medicine today, Christ experienced all five of them. Whatever it was, contusions. We, we have there that he was, he, he was smoked. Uh, whether it was lacerations, we, we read there that, that he was scourged. Uh, we, we read there about uh, uh, perforating wounds, right? The crown of thorns, about, about penetrating wounds, right? We have the nails, about in, incised wounds, the spear that goes through him. All five wounds that, that medicine knows about. Every one of them, Christ experienced at the cross. All five of them. And yet you would say this. I would say this. The Bible would say this. The wounds don't save us. God placed on him my sins. God placed every single one of my sins because only God could count them. They were placed on him, and that is where the healing is from. The Bible says that he was crushed, that he was pierced, that he was disciplined, that he was there, his stripes. And it all comes back to me. It all comes back to me because I look at this, and as I ask the question, why? Why? And we read here that all this was done. And if you just go back a couple of verses, it says that God's son was made unrecognizable. Unrecognizable. I've seen some people at the tent. Sometimes they come out. You haven't seen them in five, ten years. I was talking to a, a friend of mine last night. He said his mom just saw her sister after 17 years. And you say, sometimes we just don't recognize people. But I've never seen an unrecognizable man. You say, unrecognizable. And you'd say, Why? Why was God's son made unrecognizable? Is so that I could be recognized as a son of God. God's son, all this was done for him, to him. And you'd say, for me, for me. And when we look at this verse, when we look at what took place here, I, I can recognize this. We talk about substitution. We talked about it last night. We talk about it tonight. When we look at the fact that Christ took our place at Calvary, uh, it, sometimes all we can think about is things in this life. We think about uh, substitution and we think about recipes. Uh, my brother was cooking last night and he said, do you have? And I either said yes or no. And if I didn't have it, he had to find something else in my fridge, which is barren to begin with, to, to fill in that space. You know, do you have uh, you know, someone would ask you, do you have a Coke? No, but a Pepsi. You'd say, it'll do. Some things that are just interchangeable. I thought about an athletics, the, the, the substitution. When a, when a guy gets tired, when it's the 88th minute of a soccer game, they put a sub in just to give a fresh set of legs. In a, in a sub. I think about school. When, when an unforeseen circumstance happens and, and the teacher's sick, they send in a substitute. You know, none of those go far enough to describe what Christ did. Because it wasn't just that anything would substitute for him. It was one man who could take my place, and he did. When it comes time to athletics, we think of a man being tired, 
And you'd say someone had to come in. Sometimes we think about that, that, that our religious leaders can do so much and, and I can do so much and my baptism could do so much. And, and just when those reach the end of their limit, Christ comes in and he does the rest. No, Christ does it all from zero to the end. He does everything from the beginning to the end. People will be in heaven without a baptism. People will be in heaven without a prayer. People will be in heaven without church attendance. They will be in heaven if they never belong to a church. They will be in heaven if they never come to this tent. Well, they will never, ever be in heaven if it was not for the fact that Christ took their place at Calvary. And when you see that a teacher comes in for an unforeseen circumstance, this was not unforeseen. God had always planned from the beginning from before you and I ever existed, that his son would be exchanged at Calvary, would be offered in my place. And so when we read these words, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace, to have peace with God tonight, to have real peace with God, peace that could only be made because of a cross. The writer says it is with his stripes. We are healed. And so the verse is simple. What it offers is awfully profound. And it's something that you could have tonight, not because you believe in God, but because you believe what God has said. Remember the man who died. And yet tonight, maybe for the first time, realize who he died for, who Christ suffered and was wounded and died for. He died for me. Tonight you could realize maybe that he died for you and you could be saved. Would you turn please to the Gospel of John chapter 6. <clears throat> the Gospel of John chapter 6. Verse 32, John chapter 6 and verse 32. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven, and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will, which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. We probably all owe our lives to a Canadian by the name of C. Roy Slemon. He was in charge at NORAD a number of years ago in Colorado, and the computers were screaming at him 
that there was a, a vast, a massive missile attack on the United States. And he asked a series of quick questions. His response was supposed to be to initiate a retaliatory attack. Instead of that, he asked a series of questions. Where is Khrushchev? And they answered, he's in New York. Have any of our agents told us that Russia has the number of missiles that our computers are reporting? No. Have we caught any inkling of an attack at all? Was it, was it in the pipe at all? No. So he did not press the button. That meant we did not engage in nuclear war. What they found out later was those were moonbeams. And the machines were misreading and misinterpreting moonbeams in Norway, I think it was, as being a missile attack. That was a pivotal moment. Make a mistake in that moment. And the results afterward could be devastating. I have read to you two pivotal moments. I would call the first the pivotal event in the history of the world. And the second, the pivotal event in the life of a soul. Things turn on this. Things are hinged on this. There are, are results from these pivotal events that are staggering in their importance. Here's the first. The pivotal event in the history of the world. I came down from heaven, Jesus says. I came down from heaven. The pivotal event in the history and life of a soul. Him that comes to me. Christ came down from heaven to make life possible. You can make life, make to make salvation possible. You can make salvation personal by coming to him tonight. Now that is an amazing statement. I came down from heaven. Think of how important that is. Just ask yourself, improve that. Just ask yourself, what if he had never come? What if he had never come? What would the music world have lost if Bach had never been born? What would the literary world be lacking if Charles Dickens had never been born? What would the scientific world be without if Michael Faraday had never been born? Now just take that and think what life would be like if Jesus had never come. The darkness, the coarseness, the violence, the ignorance, the misery, the doom that would be part and parcel of life in this world and would inevitably engulf us in the next world. I do not think that the man I'm quoting believes in the Lord Jesus, but he had to write an article for Newsweek magazine a number of years ago. This is what he wrote. Whether we like it or not, got that? Whether we like it or not, Christ's life radically changed human culture throughout the world. His commitment to the poor, to women and children, opened the way for civil rights and equality for women. He goes on to describe the fact that Romans used to murder their female babies because all they wanted were sons. But Christians would rescue them because they didn't think a child should be killed. And so the coming of the Lord Jesus had a profound impact on our world. And you should be thanking God tonight that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Do you think who he was? Think of where he came from. Think of why he came. And you'll understand how important this statement is. I came down from heaven. Think of where he came from. He was everlasting. I'm going to use was, not in the sense that he no longer is, but prior to his coming, he was everlasting. He was self-existent. He was supreme. 
We are creatures of time. He was without beginning or end, tireless, timeless, ageless, eternal, unaffected by the passing of years. One of his marvelous titles was I am. He was the father of eternity. He was God from everlasting to everlasting. Yet he came to save you. He is and was self-existent. He needed nothing. He needed no one. There's so much that we need, isn't there? We need air. We need food. We need water. There are mental and emotional needs that we have. He needed nothing. God was self-sustaining and self-existent. And yet he came to where he would tire, to where he would hunger, to where he would thirst, to where he would feel pain, to where he would suffer. He was supreme. Heaven was his throne. Earth his footstool. He came down here and allowed himself to be mocked, spat on, buffeted, beaten, just as Mr. Zudema has been reminding us. Think of what he came to. The only person in all of human history who could choose where he would be born, the family in which he would be born, chose as his birthplace a village called Bethlehem, a feeding trough for a cradle and a barn for a hospital. And he came, father of eternity, entered time. The self-existent one came down here as a, a man, feeling all of the vicissitudes of sinless humanity. And the supreme Lord experienced poverty, scorn, ridicule. A number of years ago, there was an Irishman sailing a yacht from New Zealand to Australia. To us, those are two dots on the map. They are far apart. And they were facing suddenly in a storm, they were facing waves that were as tall as buildings. Nick Dwyer pressed a, a button that sent an alarm signal that they needed to be rescued. And he and the woman who was with him thought for sure that they were going to die. Their 40-foot 40 40 yacht was rolling and, and, and moving through the waters, and each time a wave hit, he said, I thought, this is it. We're going to go down. The team that came to rescue them, just to give you some idea now of the dimensions we're talking about, the distances, the team that came to rescue them, it required 13 hours to reach them. They were saved. Do you know what his reaction was? He said, I, it was truly amazing to think that someone would come that far to save us. It was truly amazing to think that someone would come that far to save us. 13 hours. Amazing. Let me give you the words of a Christian hymn that we sing because it's better than my words. From heaven, he came. He loved you. He died. Such love as his never was known. Behold on the cross, the king crucified to make you an heir to his throne. And when you think of what he came to and why he came, the people for whom he came, listen to his own words. He said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. So he came for the lost. If there's a lost boy or girl in the meeting, if there's a lost woman or man in the meeting, he came for you. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And when he pictured a shepherd going out after the sheep until he find it, he obscures with those words 
the distance and the requirements and all that would be endured by that shepherd as he would keep going to find the sheep that was lost. And it is picturing for us the depths of pain and suffering to which Christ went when he suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. He said he came for the lost. The verse that's hanging to my left here tells me he came for the lowest. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners. In heaven's reckoning, there's nothing lower than this. Sinners. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing how reluctant we are to admit that we are really guilty sinners. I sometimes thought if somebody said to you, um, oh, uh, your name is familiar. Now, weren't, did I read your, did I read your name in the paper? Did you, were you, were you in prison? Were you arrested the other day? And are you facing a problem in court? You would draw yourself up and say, excuse me, I'm no criminal. What are you talking about? We would, we would take great umbrage at that. But if somebody said to you after the meeting were done, are you a sinner? The likelihood is you would say, well, I, yeah, we're all sinners. There's no problem being a sinner, is it? But to God, there is nothing worse than being marked by this awful, this deadly, this fatal, this lethal, this horrific thing called sin. And yet he came to save sinners. We have already been reminded by my brother David that his words were, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. As the seeking shepherd, he went out looking for you to save the lost. As the willing substitute, he took the place of guilty sinners at Calvary. He said in John chapter 12, I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. That was his reason for coming. In Colorado, back in 1999, there was a, a family that was vacationing. The mother, three of her little kids, and her father. They put their SUV in park, left it running for the air, got out, took some pictures of a beautiful vista. The three kids, I think, I think there were seven, five, and two. They ran back to the SUV. I cannot explain to you how this happened. They ran back to the SUV. They climbed in. And to the horror of the mother, Joy Vernon, the car started to move. Now, they had parked very close to the edge of a cliff. And the car was headed for the cliff. And that mother screamed and did the only thing she could do. She threw herself in front of the car as if her body could stop it. She threw herself in front of the SUV. She tried to stop it. And she said she felt herself being drawn underneath it and felt it go over her. And she thought to herself, they're going to die. But just, just the temporary stopping of that vehicle, just for a couple of seconds, gave her father time to run over, open the door, reach for the emergency brake and put it on. Stop the vehicle inches before it went over. Now you look up her name. That was 1999. If you look up her name, you will see a very touching video on YouTube because you'll see that two-year-old boy, Elliot, now a grown young man, pick up his mother, carry her to the shade of a tree. I think they were going to have a picnic and put her down there. Because from that moment on, when that SUV rolled over Joy Vernon, she has never walked again. Why'd she do that? 
What, 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 would, what would make a human being throw herself in front of a moving vehicle, desperately trying to stop it? Why, why would she do that? He said, well, she's the mother. She, she loved her children. What would bring the Lord Jesus from the throne of heaven to a cross, to a crown of thorns, to a beaten back, to be wounded and bruised and chastised? What would cause that? It's because he loved you. And he did not want you to perish, and he came to save the lowest. Do you know in Matthew 18, he talks about little children, and we realize he came to save the least. He said these little ones. He didn't want them to perish. Maybe there's a boy or girl in the meeting tonight, and you're listening to the gospel. I want to tell you the Lord Jesus has a special place in his heart for little children. He warns people never to touch a little child because they are dear to him. And what he wants to do is save you from your sins. If he had never come, that pivotal moment in the history of the world. In fact, there was an occasion when he actually asked that question. He said, if I had not come, people would not have realized their sin. If I had not come, thank God he came to save sinners, to be the savior, to give his life, to be wounded, to be bruised, to suffer so that you could be saved. Some people say, well, if the Lord Jesus died for everybody. And if he paid with his death for sin, then why isn't everybody automatically saved? Because you're going to have to have a moment in your life when you come to him. When you trust him. That moment of conversion is the pivotal moment in the life of a soul. That moment of conversion is the most important moment that a human being can have. Do you have a moment like that? If you want to know, I, I'm sure now he's already referred to it tonight a couple of times. But if you ask Mr. Zudema when the meeting is done, tell me, do you have a moment like that? He would be happy to tell you. If you ask any of the Christians here, tell me, do you have a moment when you came to the Lord Jesus? They would be happy to tell you that there's a moment somewhere in this world at some point in their life where they put the brakes on, where they realized they were on the way down, they were on the way to hell. And they turned to the Lord Jesus and they came to him and they were saved. Do you have a moment like that? Because this is an open invitation, isn't it? Think of how many times the Lord Jesus used these words. He said in Matthew 11, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, allow the little children to come unto me. He spoke about people coming unto him and hearing his words, that they were like people building a house on a rock that would never give way and that would hold them. And I have read to you here in this very passage where he said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. And in very similar language, in the seventh chapter of this book, the Lord Jesus stood at the end of a week-long religious festival, and he said, if anybody is thirsty, let him come to me. Let him come to me. So there was a Savior tonight who was inviting you to come to him. Do you have a moment in your life when you came to him? Do you have a moment when as a, a helpless sinner, you came to him? Because on that, until that moment happens, then all the work, all the value that he accomplished at Calvary does you no good. The fact is that he is giving you the absolute assurance of what will happen if you do come to him. He says, him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Now, just before I close, could I get your attention a moment? Make sure that it's Christ you come to. 
Not your thinking, not your feelings. Christ. Make sure it is Christ that you come to. You say, well, how, how would I do that? He's in heaven. I'm on earth. How do you come to a man who's in a, in a, in a different world and, and far away? How do I come to him? I think it's a wonderful lesson that we learn in John chapter 4. When a man comes to the Lord Jesus and begs him to come home with him because his son was right on the edge of eternity. He was hovering on the edge of eternity is the idea in the words that he used. One more minute, you see, and the boy could be gone. And so the father wants the Lord Jesus to come from here and come all the way home with him, come into the boy's room, wave his hands over the boy, and cause the boy to live instead of die. And the Lord Jesus says to this man, go your way, your son lives. Six words. Go your way, your son lives. And the Bible says the man believed the word that Jesus said unto him, and he went his way. Now, as he's on his way home, and it must be an overnight trip, because the next day, a servant is coming this way, sees his master all alone, and says to him, your son's alive. And so the father says, when did he start to get better? And the servant doesn't say, well, he started to get better yesterday. He said, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Now, they didn't have watches with second hands. But the way it's worded, you will know exactly what the man realizes. He realizes that the moment that Jesus said, your son lives, the boy was better. Now, did you notice what happened? The man went to the Lord Jesus to get Jesus to come back with him. When he went back home, he came without Jesus. What did he have? He had the word of Jesus. Tell me what the difference was. I, I can see one difference. Here it is. If the Lord Jesus had gone with him, the boy would have died and the Lord Jesus would have raised him from the dead. But all the way home, that father would have been biting his fingernails, hoping we get there in time, hoping we get there in time. I hope we can get there before my son dies. Whereas the moment that Jesus said to him, your son lives all the way home. He knew what he was going to find when he got home. On July the 10th, 1966, God said to me, he that believes on the son has everlasting life. I believe what God said. Jesus wasn't in my room. I didn't throw my arms around him personally, but I received him as my savior. And from that moment to now, as I've been on my way home to heaven, I know exactly what's going to happen when I breathe my last because I have the word of Christ. And the way that a person comes to Christ is he comes to the word of Christ. And the way that a person receives Christ is he receives the word of Christ. And the way that a person believes on the Lord Jesus Christ is he believes on the word of Christ. Which is why he said, he that hears my word and believes God that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but is passed from death unto life. Here's what he says. The person who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. You know what that means? If you come to the Lord Jesus tonight, you, a guilty sinner, you are guaranteed a welcome. 
He will not cast you out. The first time that's used in our Bible is about somebody being disinherited. Genesis chapter 21. And he was cast out. He was disinherited. He could not have the place that Isaac would have. The Lord Jesus is saying, I will never cut you off. When you hear the language, for instance, of Matthew chapter 8 about people being cast out into outer darkness. When you read the description of the great day of judgment, of people being cast away into the lake of fire. And then you hear the words of the Lord Jesus. I will not, I will not cast away, cast out. He's offering you a welcome tonight. And if you come to him, the Savior who came down from heaven, if you come to him and you trust him, he will never cast you out. He will receive you and you will be saved. So now the question is, what are you going to do with the gospel? Thank you for coming. It's difficult to listen on a night like this. And you've all been very attentive. And Mr. Brother David and I deeply appreciate that. But please, that just now as the meeting closes, what are you going to do with the gospel? With the Lord Jesus? With the invitation? Will you come? Will you come? Will you come? Or will you ignore the invitation of the man who says, him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Don't make that foolish mistake. Come to him. You'll get your first taste of the bread of life. You'll get your first drink of the water of life. You will be received. You will be welcomed. You will be saved. You will have everlasting life if you will come to the Lord Jesus.